Dana for the meal can go straight to the tables beside the marquee. Other offerings can be brought straight into the marquee. Yami Musawada Veramani Sikha Padang Samadhi Yami Isikapatang Samadhi Yami Sura Meraya Madhya Pamadatana Veramani Sikha Padang Samadhi Yami Sura Meraya Madhya Pamadatana Veramani Sikha Padang Samadhi Yami Imani Pancha Sikha Padani Silena Sukkatinyanti Silena Pukasambada Silena Nibbutinyanti Tatsma Silang Visoda Yeh ครับต่อจากนี้ไปขอเรียนเชิญทุกท่านได้โปรดตั้งนโมพร้อมกันสามครั้งเพื่อถวายสังฆทานนะครับนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะอิมานิมยังพันเตพัตตานิสัปปริวารานิภิกขุสังคัสสะโอโนชยามะสาธุโนพันเตสังโฆอิมานิพัตตานิสัปปริวารานิปฏิคันหาตุอัมหากังทีคารตังอิตายะสุขาวารัง
สัพพะพุทธานุภาเวนะสัพพะธรรมะภาเวนะสัพพะสังฆานุภาเวนะพุทธรัตนังธรรมรัตนะสังฆรัตนังดีนังรัตนานะอานุภาเวนะจตุราสีทิสหสัธรรมคันนานุภาเวนะพิทาคันทยานุภาเวนะชินาสาวกานุภาเวนะเปเดโรคาสาเปเดพยาสาเปเดอันธรายาสาเปเดอุปาทวาสาเปเดทุนิเมตตาสาเปเดอวัมังลสันตุวายุวาทะโคธนวาทะโคสิริวาทะโคยาสวาทะโคบาลวาทะโควานวาทะโคสุขวาทะโคโอทุสามัญญาทุกโรคภัยเวราทุกาสันตุจุภานวาอเนกาหันดารายาปิวินาสันดุจเนเทจัตสายาสิทิทานังลาภะโสติภาคยังสุขังบาลาดิริยายุจาวานอจัมพังคังวุทิจยาสวาสัทวาสัจยุจะชีวเสถียรวันทุเทบวันทุสับมังกลังรักันทุสับเทวทัสบบุตานุภาเวสัตสติภวันทุเทบวันทุสับมังกลังรักันทุสับเทวทัเมื่อเดือนที่แล้วเราได้มีการจัดงานเกี่ยวกับการเปลี่ยนแปลงของประเทศไทยเกี่ยวกับการเปลี่ยนแปลงของประเทศไทยเกี่ยวกับการเปล
opening, uh, official opening of the Amravati Buddhist Center. So ten years on, uh, we invited uh, Venerable uh, Panyananda uh, to come uh, for this ceremony because uh, the 10th anniversary plus the groundbreaking ceremony for the new temple. Misaka Puja, of course, is the most, uh, one of the most important uh, Buddhist festival days, uh, probably the most uh, important in terms of popular popularity and tradition in all Buddhist countries because it's celebration of the birth, uh, enlightenment and death of the of our teacher, uh, the Lord Buddha, or the founder of uh, what we now call Buddhism. And it is, uh, of course, a uh, uh, a, a, a situation which we are contemplating the, the 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 life of any human being because all of us are born already. We're all here. All of us that are here have been born, and we will all die. That's a that's a certainty. You can be sure we were all born, and therefore we will all die. And then whether what is uncertain whether we'll ever get enlightened or not. But between the birth and the death is the is the possible enlightenment, and that's the that's the the uh, ability of a human individual to break through the delusions uh, that we create in our mind about who we are, what the world is, all the social, cultural, ethnic, religious conditioning uh, that we acquire after we're born usually based on all kinds of, of wrong assumptions and illusions uh, that are instilled into us uh, through our family, culture, ethnic background. So the aim of the, the Buddha was to break out of all these kind of assumptions of the mind and these conditioned attitudes, prejudices, biases, uh, that which tends to influence and uh, and cause us uh, to create endless suffering around the uh, experiences that we have in this lifetime between birth and death. So the the uh, the great joy of this message is that there is a way out of it. We're not just kind of hopelessly stuck with a set of conditions uh, that uh, we cannot get out of, we cannot break through, we cannot get beyond. <clears throat> and of course this uh, Buddhism I think is uh, one of the reasons the Western world has, has uh, become so interested in Buddhism in the past 50 years uh, is because it, it offers very clear directions on how to do this, how to break out of the conditioning of the mind and of course the the way to do that is through what we call mindfulness or paying attention opening the mind uh, being attentive watchful listening observant uh, not not having a program already uh, established but just the moment uh, the present here and now 
uh, potential of just being that which is aware, that which uh, is at paying attention and is listening. And of course it doesn't seem like much in terms of worldly values uh, because it's, it's an imminent act of the heart. Nobody knows, nobody can see it, and it doesn't seem like it's worth anything. Uh, where oftentimes we, we, we like to think of enlightenment as a kind of, uh, a kind of peak of, of uh, a kind of high moment where we're, we're absolutely blissed out thrown into a, a kind of ecstasy of, of uh, supreme happiness and we hope it will stick. But many of us who have been meditating for, for a long time, for many years, we do reach these moments where we just kind of totally blissed out and, and uh, think, I'm sure, I'm definitely enlightened now, this is the best I've ever felt, only to crash, not distant future and, and uh, feel a great disappointment and uh, depression because uh, we, had, uh, we had grasped the idea of this high as being the, the ultimate human attainment. One of the uh, things that uh, I think was very impressive about our teacher in Thailand, uh, Lung Po Cho, who died about three years ago, uh, was that he, he was always pointing very much not to the highs of meditation, kind of uh, extreme states of, of bliss and, and radiance and, and uh, serenity, but pointing to just the, the daily life experience, so especially in a monastery, just the humdrum ordinariness of, of putting on your robes, eating food, going out on an alms round, uh, washing your robes, sewing your robes, cleaning the monastery, doing the most ordinary, practical, seemingly uh, uninspiring acts of that, that are part of anyone's daily life, just putting on your clothes and washing the dishes. Because we do tend to exalt meditation into some kind of, of uh, supreme attainment. And when we do that, when we, ta when we, when we make it something that is fantastic or exalted or too high, then of course it no longer applies to say that which is the, the ordinariness of life. We always have to have special programs, special situations, special conditions uh, that are very dependent on other conditions. Uh, and we feel frustrated and annoyed when, when we try to control and set ourselves up in a way that that we, we're hoping to get a peak experience and, and then we feel very frustrated when it's interrupted or interfered with. But in the daily life uh, existence of, of just learning to pay attention, listen, watch, this, this, these are the words that mean the most to me after 30 years in monastic practice. Not high levels of concentration uh, and, and, and fantastic, miraculous powers, but just ability to be more with the flow of life and to, to not create problems, not to make difficulties in my own mind around the things that happen uh, to me or to the uh, people in the monastery or the, in the society or the world that I live in.
And this kind of watchfulness, awakeness, is sustainable. It's something that one can, can develop in a lifetime. Uh, it's not dependent upon things going the way you want them. It works just as well when everything's going wrong. Sometimes in anyone's life we have to put up with great disappointments, with losses, with, with tragedy, uh, with just bad health. Uh, uh, and uh, these are the these these kind of situations are part of a human experience, but they're no obstruction to enlightenment to seeing things clearly. Bad health is not a problem; is no obstruction. Nor is uh, uh, loss of a loved one, or or failure in the society, or any of the worst uh, things that you can imagine that can happen to you uh, in your lifetime. Uh, say, that, that happened from outside. Those are not the obstructions to enlightenment. The obstructions are what we create in our mind out of our ignorance, out of our not paying attention, not understanding things as they really are. Also, I think in one appreciates the, in the Buddhist uh, teaching very much the fact that its emphasis is so much on uh, uh, on, say, formlessness, on emptiness, on selflessness, uh, concepts that sometimes uh, seem the negation, of, it seems like a negative kind of approach to uh, religious experience, because we're talking about emptiness, where uh, the world, uh, worldly values, uh, don't value emptiness, they value, they want fullness, oneness, completeness. We want to, to, to be fulfilled and, and, uh, have, and we want to have everything. The idea of nothing seems like, uh, seems like it, uh, something depressing and, on, and unwanted. But in the, the Buddha emphasized these two extremes, something and nothing, self and not self, uh, space and form, condition, unconditioned. Because these, these, these are the concepts that point to what we're actually experiencing in any given moment. We're always having to deal with a condition, and it, that condition is always related to the unconditioned. Just as a uh, form is always related to space. So self, a sense of self, or selfishness, or conceitedness, uh, or egotism, or these kind of uh, self-important conditions of our mind are always related to a not-self. Emptiness is a, is a, we think is a, it's like if it's empty, there's, there's nothing in it worth, worth having, meaningless. But yet, emptiness and space are things that we are, are, say, are with us all the time. They're ever-present, but they're not noticeable as such. You have to listen, you have to awaken, you have to pay attention to begin to notice, say, just the space in this marquee. How many of you really noticed uh, or pay attention or give any, any value to the fact of there's, there's space here, except if you're feeling maybe crowded, somebody's pushing you, 
squeezing you, and then you think, I need more space. And yet space is, is, is forever with us, and yet uh, it is something we don't, do not notice. We tend to be caught up with the form, with the things in the space. So in, in mindfulness, what we're doing is we're actually noticing. We're not saying one is superior or better, or uh, I'm not trying to, to put a value on space or form as being superior or inferior, but paying attention to that if you have one, you have the other. And this state of being able to observe and witness and listen and pay attention is the, the great gift that we have as, as human beings. Like having an ice cream cone in front of Now, the human state is uh, con contemplating that is an interesting. I've often wondered what, what's the point of it? Uh, you know, is there any purpose to being human? You know, is it just some kind of cosmic accident? Is it, does it have any great worth or meaning? Is it just a meaningless experience that we we somehow manage to get born and stuck onto this planet in some way with with the conditions that we've acquired and and it's totally meaningless and of no use or is it are we in some cold heartless universe or is is there a god that loves us and cares for us and is looking after us or isn't there what's the point of it and these are of course, questions that we've all pondered and, and wonder about. And of course, various religions uh, come up with different answers or different uh, emphases in regards to this question. But in terms of mindfulness, what, what can you actually know is that, that at this time, uh, at this time in this place, there is this, that we're conscious and we're feeling, there's a sensitive state that we're experiencing at this moment. Like we're experiencing consciousness through a form. And therefore that means that we have to, <clears throat> what, uh, uh, what impinges on our senses we're going to feel, whether it's heat or cold, whether it's beauty or ugliness, pleasure, pain, uh, day or night, whatever contacts us or impinges onto us we're going that's going to be a consciously consciously felt experience and so since we since this is what we have to deal with for a lifetime uh, then when we take it too personally then we're when we become frightened because we can realize a lot of of our experience can be very unpleasant uh, when you suffer pain or sickness or disappointment or see, have to look or, or hear it, that which, hear those things which are unpleasant or ugly, uh, then one becomes frightened and, and you want to kind of control everything, make it, everything as pleasant, comfortable, safe, secure as one can imagine uh, in, in this lifetime. But when you 
change the attitude from, say, identity and fear uh, with, the, with the sense uh, consciousness and the experience that we have through it, then we begin to see uh, a way of, of transcending, of learning, of seeing things in a different way, not in a personal way that's based on delusion and on fear, but things as they really are. That in this moment now, no matter what the conditions might be, we are aware of it as it's this way. It's uh, impermanent. Things are not going to stay this way. We can observe that. We can observe that even if uh, something very tragic or something very unpleasant is happening to us, it's also impermanent. And we begin to break through the illusion that it's me or it's mine. That, that this is this is somehow, this, this tragedy is going to ruin me or that I am forever uh, going to suffer because I've lost all my wealth or I've been humiliated or my loved ones have died. We begin to, to not take things in that way and, and begin to develop a kind of patient, compassionate acceptance and willingness to respond and move with life in a way that we can't when we're frightened uh, and we're, we're looking at life only in terms of, of uh, I don't want to be hurt by it. I want to protect myself from all possible forms of pain and suffering. It is a, a brave teaching, in other words, to, to be a Buddhist is to, is to awaken the mind you have, to, you have to confront a lot of uh, very unpleasant things in yourself. Here in a monastery, um, I think every single monk and nun will verify the statement of the pain and misery uh, uh, that they've had to experience in monastic life. Not because the life is painful or miserable, but because of the things that you have to look at in yourself. Uh, because we become very much aware of what's going on inside us and of our, uh, all our kind of immature and, and inadequate reactions to, to uh, each other or to the community or to this, the restraint, the restriction that is a, a necessary part of monastic life. So one of the things I've found is uh, that what is most unpleasant is comes from what I create in my mind. Uh, I've, uh, I've contemplated, I've never, I've never been treated or by anyone uh, so as badly as I have treated myself. I've never been as critical of any other human being as I am, tend to be critical of myself. They've been so relentlessly tyrannical and unforgiving to another person as I have been to myself. <laughs> they think, well, why do we do this? <laughs> why are we so, so hard and, and uh, on ourselves? What is this? And when we realize it's a habit, it's a way, it's a way we've acquired of, of just developing an endless kind of uh, criticism and, and holding on to the faults, the, the, the weaknesses, the failures, 
that we have in life and making and, and regarding them and endlessly kind of reiterating, reminding ourselves, bringing them up and, and, uh, and exaggerating them to where they become huge rather than minor, small. Some, some of the things when you actually are honestly looking at them are relatively nothing. Minor little things that, but you can create a mountain out of a molehill very easily. So we are, we are tend to be creatures of habit, uh, lost in this realm of habit. That is something we acquire from, from our conditioning. It's not, we didn't even choose these habits usually. We just seem to get, acquire them as we go along. Uh, and uh, and then they they tend to take us over. We become just a victim of our own habitual thinking patterns, emotional reactions, and so forth. So the way out of suffering is through understanding this, noticing, paying attention, pondering, looking into, accepting. Uh, these are the kind of words, and uh, that that I find most significant. But of course, sometimes uh, people think that it means that we just kind of sit in a passive way and just say, well, that's just the way it is. I accept everything the way it is, so what? But it's not. Um, I'm not ad ad advising a kind of passive fatalism uh, and, uh, and uh, just <coughs> a negative uh, state of, of just saying everything's okay and dismissing but in, to, in, in really awakening the mind. And that's, that's not a passive fatalism, but a, it's, it's just the opposite. It's a real looking into, to awaken, to pay attention, to listen. You can't just be passive in a, and, and negative. You have to snap out of just, just riding along in the momentum of habit, but actually awakening yourself listening, listening to the emptiness, listening to the silence, listening to the sound, listening to the, the tyrant, listening to the good things and the bad things. And this, this sense of listening is, is attentive, but it's not judgmental. We're not analyzing or making any, any we're not saying this, I, I want this and I don't want that. We're not trying to, to, to criticize or analyze, but just notice the pattern that all that is subject to arising, subject to ceasing. And then this whole sense of me and mine that's based on an illusion falls away. There's nothing, because it's based on illusion, based on uh, the wrong information. Therefore, it's not, it has no real essence, no core to it. It's empty and meaningless in it and it drops away. And then what's left is this awakened, aware, pure intelligence. It's the purity of our very being. It's pure intelligence. Wisdom. So in this human state, we have this potential of awakening into this state of, our natural state is wise and pure. That's our natural state. No matter what you think your natural state is, some people, well, if I asked you what your natural state is, they're depressed or worried or 
and then you probably choose some horrible negative uh, description. I've often wondered in, in this life, we talk about purity a lot, and then, and then uh, uh, what is that? What is the purity? Because, uh, you know, it, it can't be something, you know, we have to contemplate and see what, these are, these are English words, and we think we understand them, and we, we, we think we really know what, what the word means, but do you know the reality of it? And so in this state of attentive awareness, it's like intuition, intuitive awareness, awakeness. We begin to free ourselves and break out of these illusions that we create, which cause us so much unhappiness and suffering. Because we can see here, here in Britain, how, you know, in a, in a society and in a, uh, a country where uh, life is, uh, for most of us, fairly easy. We don't. We aren't just on the survival line, just barely making it, starving, or with terrible wars and and uh, terrible things happening, where we just have to spend our time just trying to survive in in a jungle. I mean, we have quite a a, a safe and secure life, basically, in the, in this country, and yet we can be so utterly miserable here. And this is, and so this kind of misery is very much, you see it in, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, people, in, in, in affluent countries especially. In, in Thailand, for example, where the, the real misery is in the middle classes and the upper classes, they create misery. And they have nice houses and everything, but they, they create misery in their minds. And we get neurotic. We have time to think about ourselves and, and, uh, and to worry. But that doesn't mean I recommend we all go live in the jungle again, trying to survive. <laughs> but to recognize the advantage that we have. That here, say, in, in Britain, we we have, we have a good enough situation, say, on the material level. It's all right, good enough. And we, aren't, we don't have to go, we don't, we don't have too many worries on that level. Though we can, we do have the, the time and the uh, potential for developing our spiritual life. This is, this is what is uh, uh, how I see and why I feel very grateful for the, say, advantages of my own life. That it's given me a chance to to choose to be a Buddhist monk, to 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 live like this, uh, and to develop in this way. Uh, I've had to, I've had this this opportunity, which seemed most unlikely for someone of, of my background. And I haven't had to uh, spend my life just trying to to feed myself or, or support my parents or just uh, get by. I've had enough of the good things to know that that having everything isn't going to make very much difference. You're still going to be miserable. If you've got it wrong in your mind, you can be living in the with the nicest people in the best place in the whole world and still create suffering. 
So it starts, the, 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 the point of enlightenment is here, right now. It's where you are. And it's nothing special, but it's willing to relax, rest, pay attention, awaken. And this, of course, is the enlightenment between the birth uh, of this body and its inevitable death. So this is the Visakha Puja day, uh, meaning of Visakha Puja. Then the 10th anniversary, yeah. 10 years is not a long time. Buddhism is 2,538 years old, so 10 years is nothing. But it is a long time for, in, in uh, it doesn't seem very long actually. It seems like I've only been in England about five years, but 18 years I've been here. Seems only like five years. And uh, so I'm surprised to see people coming here all adult and everything I, I saw only a few years ago, they were little children. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then I look in the mirror and I say, yes, it's... Uh, <laughs> but also a decade is, uh, is, a, is a number that we have, gives us a sense of time uh, it seems a fairly long time, I think, in, at least to, to most of us in, in worldly terms. And then the groundbreaking ceremony, this, uh, we've had for the past few years this, this process of trying to uh, get permission and do all the right things in, this, in, the, in the system here in this country, which is very complicated and uh, very good for you because uh, it uh, demands that you develop uh, infinite compassion and ability to forgive and be extraordinarily patient to refrain from hitting certain people and <laughs> controlling your tongue <laughs> and uh, and dealing with the feeling of total exasperation and futility and endless doubts and this temple project is a, it was a great idea and, and very easy to, to come up with you know it seemed like a logical thing to, to want to build a temple but then the, the thing is to is then to put it into a, a form to actually start doing it and that's the and that, that's a, a process. It is, takes quite a lot of, of uh, energy and patience. So it is uh, something that uh, I think now we're all quite prepared for. I mean, actually the delays and, and the obstructions and difficulties have, I think, had, their, had a, a, a rather positive effect on our mind because we, we had to uh, learn how to work together and, and go through things and, and, and support each other. Uh, it wasn't just waving a magic wand and somebody comes in, builds a temple, and there it is all nicely uh, arranged for us. But it, it, it's, a, it's a, something that we've, we've all contributed to and, and worked with and uh, contemplated. 
And of course, when you're doing something like this, you're stepping into an unknown situation. Like, I've never done this before. And, uh, and you, it, it, you can think, uh, you know, am I sticking my neck out? What's going to happen? What's going to, how's it going to work? How will we raise the money? What if it all, what if everybody, what if suddenly Buddhism uh, people uh, are no longer interested? What if, uh, <laughs> what if all the monks disrobe? Uh, for a while it looked like it was going that way. <laughs> I thought, they're building a temple for who? Then people come and say, Ajahn Sumato, a temple is in your heart. And they say, you don't need to build a material temple, just build one in your heart. They say, thanks a lot. <laughs> Never thought of that one before. All the corny advice you can get from people. But also, there's a certain amount of truth in that. It's, uh, the, the point is, isn't it? The temple is a symbol, the convention. And uh, it's something that you can say uh, is, you know, if, if we were just trying to, to build a temple as, as a something as an end in itself, that would be, uh, you know, I wouldn't be interested in doing that. But it is a, a, a something, I think, that will, it's for all of us, isn't it? It's a, it's a building, it's a place, uh, it's designed. Uh, our, our architect, Tom Hancock, has put forth an enormous amount of effort and imagination and patience and willingness to try to, to uh, take into account all our wishes and also to present it in a way that it is a, a, a temple that, that we will all like to be in. We want to go inside it. We want to sit in it. When we go inside it, we, it, it, this the atmosphere is conducive towards a, a state of calm, where we can kind of let go of maybe the urgent problems and difficulties that might be obsessing our mind uh, in our daily life. We need those kind of situations are very helpful to have places, situations that that we we when we when we go there we feel a sense of. Uh, we begin to get in touch with, with that feeling of, of eternity, of divinity, of the deathless, of that which is beyond just the humdrum, banal experience of, of most people's daily lives. Because we do forget that, and, and the, the little irritations of daily life begin to take over, and we become obsessed and hysterical by by various things, and, and we, we lose track, we, we forget the great gift we actually have, and what our great potential lies, not in, in worldly success, but in that, in that simple understanding of the Buddha. Within this human state, before the body dies, there's this, this possibility of seeing things in the right way, in which we lose uh, we lose that which deludes and which uh, is the cause of our suffering in this form.
in uh, monastic in well in in Buddhist Buddhist meditation it is it's a contemplation meaning you uh, contemplation means to the ability to to open the mind to its receptive state it means to to uh, to look at and to ponder to pay attention rather than just project uh, many of uh, many people have minds that just create endless conditions and project them onto life so we we have this kind of movie projector going on where we're we're always projecting things onto situations and we we already have very maybe fixed views and fixed opinions and and attitudes that that we uh, are, are that we operate from so we we have prejudices and biases and preferences and of course you can see in in Britain, the, so many of the problems, society's problems, are, are due to this, this conditioning of the mind, where you, you're operating from preconceptions, from prejudices, from cultural prejudices, or racial prejudices, or whatever. They're, they're prejudices that condition how we, we are, that, that affect and, and, and pervert our, our experience of life. Whereas they, in intuitive awareness, we're, we're relaxing that. We're not following these conditions. We're not believing them, but we're, we're letting go to realize that purity, pure conscious awareness that's not conditioned. It's not male, it's not female, it's not Asian, not European, not even Buddhist, not even Christian. It's beyond those kind of, of, of perceptions. And yet it's here. It's not beyond in the sense of out there. But it doesn't belong to anybody. And yet it's, it's, it's everyone. Everything. Problems that we have can be solved. And this is... Uh, we're finding in monastic life more and more, becoming more and more skilled in how to solve just the problems of, say, relating to each other. Monks to monks, nuns to nuns, monks to nuns, and lay people, and, and uh, people that are the, the local people, and the, the, uh, the uh, British, and the, and the Sri Lankan, and the Thais, and the and the and this kind of person or that kind of person, where all the differences and the and the assumptions and infinite varieties of conditions uh, that make us uh, unique personalities, is no longer, say the the thing that that uh, that we grasp and regard as uh, anything other than just the conditions of the moment, because we we're beginning to recognize that universal aware, intelligent purity of being, which is non-personal, it's not individual, not mine, as if, as if I have it and you don't. And so religions are pointing to this, aren't they? If it's a, if it's a proper religion, then it's always pointing to that which is deathless, beyond birth and death ultimate truth or these kind of words make it sound very abstract but, but it, it's very real 
in itself. Once you say, let go and open and trust and have faith in paying attention to your life, in listening. So hopefully this temple will be a place that, that will remind you of that when you come here. It will change the, the uh, atmosphere of Amaravati from its Boy Scout camp, army barracks, uh, Nazi concentration camp atmosphere. When you saw pictures of Auschwitz and things like that, look at the look like our buildings. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I remember the shower that we used to have in the back of the sala. It's like one of those gas chambers. <laughs> but still livable. And it's all right in itself. But this will will change the the uh, the to a to a more say. A, a truly kind of religious quality and atmosphere that, that I personally would find very pleasing and which I think all of you w will appreciate. The, the situation, of course, is a very good one. This, uh, this particular spot at Amaravati, the, uh, I've always had this kind of vision in my mind ever, ever since, I think, uh, before we came to Amaravati, I had the vision of a of a kind of stupa-like building on top of a hill uh, with these kind of radiant beams of Dhamma kind of radiating outward across to the European continent and over the Atlantic to America. <laughs> and uh, so this, this, is, this is the top of a hill and, uh, this is, and the temple plan is, is something like a, a stupa. It has a, has a Stupa-like quality. Also, the the top of the stupa is a is is a, is a kind of uh, design that that was taken from the uh, Tat Panom stupa in northeast Thailand, which is one of the very beautiful chetis in uh, in Thailand, or highly regarded sacred places in Southeast Asia. And, uh, but it is a, is a four, it is a, it is a rather than being round, it, ha it a, has a, a four corners uh, and it has that four, four sides, four-sided stupa. And, uh, and I've always liked that, that design very much. So that's one of my ideas because so um, uh, many of us have spent our early spiritual development in Northeast Thailand, with Lung Phong Cha. And so that particular form was a, a kind of, I think, has a special meaning for those of us who've lived in, uh, in the Isan or Northeast Thailand. And then uh, also my, my uh, Upachaya, the monk that ordained me uh, 30 years ago, is, uh, is now the head monk of that, of that temple of Tat Panom. He's, he uh, has been, for the past five years, the... Uh, the uh, abbot of that very famous uh, holy place. The cloisters, uh, I think you'll, you see in the, in the plans inside the sala, the idea of cloisters is, is very monastic. 
both in, in the Southeast Asian setting, in Thailand and in Laos, uh, but also in, in the Christian monasteries here in, in Europe. And also the cloisters will act very much in, as, a, as a windbreak. This gets very windy, as you, as you probably noticed, and can get quite cold. So the, the cloisters are, are also designed to, uh, to just provide uh, shelter and to make this, this quadrangle, this, this square, more, live more useful and more beautiful uh, for all of you when you come here to Amravati. I think these are are blessings from the Devadas. Somebody was telling me the other day that the the Nordic gods hate it when Buddhism comes into their territory. <laughs> Odin and Thor. They, as soon as Buddhism starts moving in, they get pretty uh, pretty anxious and hostile. We can look at it that way, <laughs> or we can, <laughs> or we can just think the devas are sprinkling us with uh, holy water. Whatever way you want to think of it. <laughs> so at two, at three o'clock, then we'll we'll have the uh, groundbreaking ceremony. That will be a circumambulation, if if it stops raining by then. And uh, we'll see what. <laughs> see what happens at three o'clock. So I want to express my uh, appreciation for your interest and your uh, coming here over the years. Uh, in, here in England, I feel. Uh, very uh, positive, very grateful, very, uh, my life here I think has been a very happy one. Uh, and uh, it's due to the, the, uh, the, the kind, I, have a, I think I have a special way, uh, being a Buddhist monk, a, a special opportunity uh, living here because I've never lived in England as an ordinary person. I've only lived here as a Buddhist monk. So, I've never done anything very bad here in England. <laughs> and so, also, uh, Buddhist monks draw all you lovely people, though the kind of dark and nasty side of this country I, I, I have very little knowledge of. Uh, the bad side of Britain is you hear about, and, but I seldom ever meet it myself uh, or see it. So, so it is, uh, uh, I think, a life of a Buddhist monk, even though some of you probably have felt sorry for me, uh, you needn't. It's, it's, quite a very nice, it's quite a lovely way to live. Uh, and also gives you uh, a way of being within a, within a country that you, you contact the, 
people that have this same interest, which is the most important interest to many of us, is our interest in the Dhamma, in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So that, that, give, that makes us into a family, a sense of a strong bond of relationship in what is most important to us. And I think that, that uh, gives us uh, a sense of, of not being lonely, not being just aliens or foreigners, in a, in a, even though on, on the practical level I'm a, I'm a foreigner, uh, I'm a weirdo. Uh, this, it looks weird, being a Buddhist monk in this country, it looks very weird, very strange. Uh, but in actual uh, ex, uh, daily life, it's, it's a very pleasant uh, way to exist here in Britain. So I think I will uh, stop now and let you all prepare for, and, and send out your, all your prayers and requests to the devas or to Odin and Thor to let the sun shine at three o'clock. Thank you. is going to unveil the, uh, the plaque which has been made specially for this occasion which will be uh, commemorating this event and will be placed uh, in, the, uh, in the wall of the temple once it has been finally erected.
the plaque uh, reads, commemorates the groundbreaking ceremony of the temple and cloisters, Vesaka Puja, 2538, May 13th, 1995, dedicated by Venerable Tamagosa Jan, Venerable Sumaita Charya, and the Sangha, His Excellency Vidvicha, Rayananand, and uh, the Ambassador of the Royal Thai Embassy, who is being uh, represented by his deputy, and also by His Excellency S.K. Wickrema Singha, Sri Lankan High Commissioner. Now I would like to invite the, uh, Mr. Wickrema Singha, the Sri Lanka of the Sri Lankan High Commission, the, the Commissioner, to say a few words to us at this time regarding this this ceremony. Oh, please, Your Excellency. Most venerable sirs, distinguished guests and friends, I am very happy to have been present here on the occasion of the groundbreaking ceremony for the new project at the Amaravati Buddhist Monastery on this, on this Vesak day, the holiest day of the Buddhist calendar. Amaravati is a world-renowned institution and the Sri Lankan High Commission has had close relations with it from its inception. Therefore, I consider it a great privilege to be here today within a very short time of my assuming duties as the High Commissioner in, for Sri Lanka. On this occasion, I represent not only the government of Sri Lanka, but the large Sri Lankan Buddhist community that is resident in this country and who are fellow disciples of Theravada tradition of Buddhism. I am happy also to say that our community holds Amravati very close to their heart. As we are aware, the Venerable Ajahn Sumedho, the chief abbot of this institution and the monastic community here can trace their lineage back to the most venerable Ajahn Chah, a highly respected teacher of medi meditation of Thailand. Although Sri Lanka has its own tradition of Buddhism, Sri Lankan Buddhists are also highly indebted to Thailand for maintaining Buddhist traditions during the long period of time when Sri Lanka was under foreign domination. In conclusion, may I say that we are all very happy that the Amaravati Monastery, together with other Buddhist centers which have links with Thailand, Burma, and Sri Lanka, are doing a great service for the propagation of Theravada Buddhism in UK and, and Europe. I wish that with the blessings of the Triple Gem, this temple you are initiating today will be a great success. Thank you. Now I wish to invite the Deputy Ambassador at the Royal Thai Embassy, Mr. Uh, Pitak 
พรมบุพาวันนี้เราเจ้าคุณธรรมโกสาจารย์พระสุเมธาจารย์ Venerable teachers Your Excellency ladies and gentlemen Thank you for giving me the opportunity to say a few words. Unfortunately, the ambassador is not is unable to attend the ceremony today. Although he very much wanted to, therefore, it is my honor and privilege to speak on his behalf. What our temple has inextricably. Intertwined with Thai ways of life, dating back thousand years ago. What has been a school for children, a center where local people get together for exchanging news, and most of all, a place to receive and practice the Lord Buddha teachings. Since the Second World War, organizations representing Important school of Buddhism, deriving particularly from Japan, Tibet, Burma, Sri Lanka, and Thailand, have become established in Britain. And Amaravati Buddhist Monastery is one among those which receive high respect internationally. I'm very confident that. This temple will continue to be the international center for anyone interested in Buddhism, and symbolize mutual understanding and cooperation among nations. I would like to express my sincere appreciation to all those involved in this project, whose a great deal of effort and hard work has been put into making this new temple a reality. On behalf of the Lord Thai Embassy, I would like to add that if there is anything we can do to support this project, please count on us. We will do our best in whatever way we can. And now I'd like to. Uh Uh, invite Mr. George Sharp, who has been the chairman of the English Sangha Trust since 1972, and is the uh, man uh, whose uh, efforts and uh, intelligence and patience uh, and willingness to uh, invite the invite us to England 18 years ago, Anjan Chah and I both came on his invitation. Uh, so. Uh, he has just retired as chairman of the English Sangha Trust, and so we feel a, 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 a sense of uh, immense gratitude, and we'd like to present him with a memorial, uh, calligraphic statement of our respect and appreciation and love.
Venerable Bhikkhus, Your Excellency, Ambassador, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I, it has been my privilege to serve this Sangha, which uh, has lasted since 1972. That's when I first became a director. And I was uh, able to participate with the four bhikkhus who first came with Achan Chah to Haverstock Hill. Um, actually, this gift, which I, I find very touching, uh, is quite unexpected, and I thank you for it. Um, but you'll be relieved to know that I do have this four-hour speech with me. <laughs> um, but I things I would like to say, um, little story. Um, in November of 1979, I was in Thailand for talks with Achan Char about the rather worrying purchase of a large near-derelict house in Chithurst, Sussex. Buying the property can only be described as an act of faith. Fortunately for me, I had the backing of Ajahn Sumedha. And as Ajahn Chah put it so succinctly, it's like you bought a car and now you can't afford the petrol. <laughs> Uncertainty uh, surrounding what appeared to be a foolish venture perturbed Ajahn Chah not at all. He listened attentively to all the complexities, the need for rebuilding, planning permission problems, likely financial demands. And at the time, he had over 30 monasteries under his care, and Chithurst was just another problem. It appeared to affect him about as much as a duck might feel having water spilled over his back. And so we went to this place called Tangsang Pet, a thousand acres of land probably the only rocky promontory on the vast Mekong Plain, which had been given to him by a supporter. It is a beautiful place. Uh, there are caves for bhikkhus to use and live in, and in the intense heat, breezes stir the air. And when we arrived, we found a monastery almost complete. Winding asphalt road had been built to its summit and later I had learned that it had been built by monks laboring day after day, one of whom was the young Sumedho Bhikkhu. At its summit, an Upasata hall had been built. It was huge, high, high roof supported by columns above what seemed like an acre of marble. What impressed me more, however, was Achinchar's evident indifference to it all. That fascinated me. How is it possible for one not to take pride in such an accomplishment? Seeing him one day sitting alone in that cool space, I asked Ajahn Babakro to take me to him and translate, for I wished to have something of value I could take back with me to Chithurst, some really important understanding about what is needed uh, to build a monastery from scratch. This, I said, indicating the impressive building with a wave of my hand, must have been the most immense labor for you. I can't even begin to contemplate the problems you must have faced to achieve all this. He said, yes, it was. And now that it is finished, it is like it never happened. Would you like a seven-up? <laughs> I thought I, about his reply, while I made the seven up impermanent. 
I say this because the groundbreaking ceremony for the new Amravati temple begins work which will raise the first monastic building of its kind in the Western world here in this country. It is an historic moment. Richard Randall in 1956 sought ordination in the company of three Englishmen at Wat Paknam in Thailand. The English Sangha Trust was created to be its legal instrument. My inspiration was by meeting Richard Randall, who was then Bhikkhu Kapilavadu. I mention this because I wish this historic event to be enacted without acknowledgement of the debt we owe to the Venerable Kapilavadu Bhikkhu. We should remember too his devoted lay supporter, Maurice Walsh, my predecessor as chairman, who is here today. Without Maurice, none of this would have been possible. Also, we owe a dear debt, a debt to my dear friend, Frieda Wint and Geoffrey Beardsley, who served the trust unwaverably during the most difficult times. Nobody had a blueprint for what was to come from my chance meeting with Achan Semedo in 1976, there was never a time when any individual knew the picture. Somehow it emerged. The way things developed was never in the way one thought. It did it in some other way. And with every capricious change, the Sangha adapted, welcomed it, and made it positive. Let it be that this temple be erected to the fine ideal of Sangha. Let it be that we can walk in the light, airy spaces created by the architect Tom Hancock to inspire us to make further efforts for our own release. That there could be no more fitting ending to this short speech of mine than to recall the words of Ajahn Sujito. So we return to our core values, acknowledge the attitudes we need to let go of, and support each other. Thus, and in no other way, and for no other reason, do monasteries get built. Thank you. So I'd like to uh, invite the Sangha now to complete the ceremonies with the uh, chanting of the sharing of blessings um, before the skies bless us uh, with their own offerings. It's in the program. And we'll do it in English, uh, and it will be led by Ajahn Sujito. So if you want to follow along, please open your program. It's the, um, the verse that begins, Through the goodness which arises from my practice.
receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge in the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Well, it's the first time I've ever heard a thunder god join in with the chanting. So uh, on that note, um, the Venerable uh, Chakun Dhammagosajan will give a, a Dhamma talk now in the marquee. And all of those who like to um, go along and listen to that, uh, that will be beginning, uh, I think, at, uh, straight away. So please make your way over there, all those who would like to, to listen to Dhamma talk. And uh, perhaps the Sangha members could uh, leave as much space as possible for the lay people and uh, not attend the talk so that as many of the, the visitors today can get into the, the marquee. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Great pleasure to be present to Thank you, Bante. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's an announcement for uh, Maurice Walsh. Uh, if he could come to the, uh, the stand where the Sangha is, there's uh, a missing person looking for him. <laughs> <laughs>